This is Web Suasion Conversation, episode 25. Welcome to the show. I am Ryan Williams, founder and president of the Web Suasion Group and Kapoka Studios here at Pinewood Atlanta Studios in Fayetteville, Georgia. Today on the show, we have Nermeen Jassani. She is a former Wall Street attorney and former tech startup entrepreneur who now runs Highland Oak Group. She has worked with hundreds of business owners, providing her proven methodology to increase revenue that is based on calculated, intentional, and results-driven metrics. One of the things we'll talk about with Nermeen today is her tech startup that she did several years ago, her experience with that. And now she's transformed that knowledge and experience into helping her own clients move forward with their business ventures. Now, of course, we love tech startups here at WebSuasion, and we are often working as their development staff. Before we move forward with any tech startup, we always make sure that we have application architecture in place. Now, that is one of my key functions here at WebSuasion, sitting down with CEOs and CFOs and CTOs on these tech startup staffs, making sure that we have application architecture, which is essentially blueprints in place to achieve whatever their end game is. Now, that entails everything from the database up to the user interface. I'll start with database schema, UML diagrams of objects in the system, process workflows for how users will use the system, and finally, prototypes for the user interface, both mobile and cloud. It's an absolute necessity, just like you wouldn't build a house without having blueprints. You don't want to build an application without them either. It's going to end up being very costly. You're going to have a lot of change orders. If you know what's going into the plan before you start development, you're going to have a much easier time staying on budget, staying on track, staying on schedule, and achieving what you need to achieve without problems. So if you are starting a development project and you do not already have an application architecture in place, give us a call. 404-418-8909, extension 10. That's my extension, and I will set up a consultation with you. Now let's talk to Nermeen Jasani. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ryan. You actually came over very young to New York City, right? You grew up in New York City? Yeah, I grew up in Queens, New York. I came when I was two, so I don't exactly remember coming in, but I was there until I was about 10 years old. So I spent about the first, you know, the primitive eight years of my life, Uh my my wonderful adolescence uh, in Queens, New York. You had an initial career in law Mm -hmm. that you sort of migrated away from now. We'll get into that. But what got you into law in the first place? So (laughs) I say this to all my friends who are currently lawyers, and they always sympathize with me when I say this, but when... I was growing up, which was right around 2003, 2004. That's right when I was in college. Law and Order, Law and Order SVU, all these law shows were on TV. And it made practicing law look so sexy. I mean, you know, (laughs) being in a courtroom, wearing a suit, commanding, you know, the entire room. It just felt so 
magical and mesmerizing. You didn't see any of the paperwork. And I didn't see any of the, the any work of the that had to go into it. I just was like, I could stand in front of a room of people and convince them that the bad guy is really bad. Yep. And so that's exactly why I went into law was because of this sort of naive, imaginative world of what law actually is. Right. And then I got to law school and was like... Wait, what? So it's not the stuff that's been shown on TV and that I've been watching all these seasons of Law and Order for it's something completely very, different? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it was it was a hard reality check, which is why I actually only practiced for a few years yeah. and left the practice of law. Back up a little bit though. Mm-hmm. Tell me about you were a crude oil analyst. Was <laughs> that for a while? Yeah. So it was really wonderful. Uh, I graduated from law school in 2010 when the markets had crashed. Yeah. And uh, you did hit it just right. Didn't I, you? I did. I did. I got really lucky. I, <laughs> you know, you really have to play your cards right to yeah, have luck like that, right? Exactly. So so it was 2010, I had graduated. And unfortunately, at the time, many massive law firms, you know, the big law firms were laying off people and they yes. were still laying off people. And they had kind of started to lay off in 08 and 09, but not as much as they should have. I think that you know, they were expecting a comeback in the market or to be able to do, you know, bigger bankruptcy work and things like that once the markets fell. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. And so any job offers that were made, which typically when you're a lawyer, you get offered a job your second year, your second summer, it's your summer associateship. And then when you graduate, that's where you end up working. So if you got an offer... It was taken away. And that happened to so many of us. And so I was lucky enough where I had walked into the CME, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which bought NYMEX, the New York Mercantile Exchange. And Uh that's where I was April of 2010. And I asked if they were hiring and they said yes. And I was like, wow, a job in New York City and I don't have to be unemployed in this market. How great. And so that's what I ended up doing. I ended up being an analyst in the commodities market. I started off with silver and watching the silver market. I think I went on to electricity and then got, you know, the hot one, which was crude oil because everybody trades it. And so much of the world market is dependent on prices of oil. And so that was just really cool seeing how the entire world reacts to the price of a barrel of this stuff. So how did that inform your legal work? Did it at all? You know, it didn't really inform my legal work as much as it made me sort of realize that legal is just a small, teeny, 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 tiny part of like what actually happens in the big world. And it kind of made me want to do bigger world, bigger impact stuff. Right, right. And so right after I got done with the CME, I spent a little bit of time practicing law as in-house counsel, which was pretty cool. But what that really led me to was my sort of big idea for my tech startup. Right. And that was in 2011, I think, that mm-hmm. I had the idea. And that was Lumel? Lumel, yes. So tell and me about that. What was, was this a mobile app or was this just it was, was a portal site? Or? It was a web app. Okay. It was my brainchild for my own personal experience of living in New York where right. I had lived in New York City for two years and I had no female friends. Right. I had like two friends and it was just really kind of sad and lonely because you're in a city of 10 million, but right. you know, I had two people I could call on my phone book to go do stuff. And 
it really started weighing on me. And then I started asking random women, like not just my coworkers, but like baristas and people I would come across, like, do you have friends? You know, and, <laughs> and they kind of all would say, you know, I had a really good friend or I had some friends, but they moved out to Long Island. because right. That's what you do when you get married. You know, you move out to the suburbs. You don't stay in the city anymore. You're only there for two years and yeah. then you burn out and you go home or Whatever the story was, it just felt like every other woman in her 20s in New York had shared some form of my experience and my pain, which was not enough friends. And so that made me want to solve the problem. And so I decided to tackle the friendship problem right through technology, which is so silly. But that was what I spent a few years of my life doing. And the ultimate. Did you go after venture capital and everything? I did. I did. I went after VC money for probably close to two years. I tried VC money in New York. I tried VC money in LA and I actually moved out to LA so I could get VC money. And I tried in Atlanta. And the biggest problem I had with the VC world was they kept coming to me and saying, okay, we really like the idea, but we want you to have 100,000 users before we'll give you money. Right. And I'm like, but I need money before I can get to 100,000 users. So it was this constant chicken and egg. Everyone kept saying the same thing, which was it's a really great idea. But, and I just needed somebody who was willing to take a risk. And after like almost four years of trying and putting in like $60,000 of my own money, right. it didn't go anywhere. Yeah, and yeah. it you know, it was such a great learning experience. And I learned so much about marketing and technology and APIs and coding in Python and all this stuff, yeah. you know, which is so great to learn when you're in technology. But, you know, it just sort of... It is really gapped there. It is really hard. Launching an app for consumers mm-hmm. is still, I mm-hmm. mean, business to business is what we do. And I know that world and I know how to sell it and I know how to target it. Yeah. Consumers is such a weird market to me. It is such a weird market. And I think my biggest takeaway from that, because I've done a few interviews, you know, following, you know, Lumel uh-huh. and just sort of other startups that have had a similar idea. Yeah. Oh. And they've just sort of said, well, what's your take since, you know, your company died? Do you think these others are going to be successful? And my whole thing has always been, you know, uh, apps today have to be a reflection of what the pop culture community is and what people are actually saying. Right. And it took so long for online dating and app dating to become a thing that I think friendship dating and looking online for friends is sort of the same thing, where until the pop culture conversation shifts and women actually start talking about how they don't have friends or they don't have things to do or they find themselves oftentimes lonely or not hanging out with the right group of people, I think until TV shows start covering that, I think until radio shows start covering that, there could be all these apps in the world, but women just aren't going to feel comfortable enough using them until we're actually having a conversation about it. So until that happens, I don't think that there's going to be one app out there that's going to be like a Facebook, but for making friends. Right. You know, you have a family who's in business. Mm -hmm. So when they're in that situation. Obviously, you get pulled into it, but you became chief operating officer of Mattress Atlanta. Yeah. Down yeah. in, uh, in Atlanta, South Atlanta, right? Or Absolutely. West Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. So that's actually a great story. So when I moved from, I shut down Lumel mm. and I came to Atlanta because this is where my family is. And I was just going to sort of regroup here for a couple months before I decided what my next move was going to be. Sitting at the dining table with my father and my mother and my father says, well, I've got an idea for a business. And I was like, okay, what's this idea? Because my dad's just one of those who has ideas like right. every 2.2 seconds. And so I was like, great, what's this one? And he said he wanted to start a mattress factory. 
And I was like, that's weird enough for me to want to be interested. So I (laughs) was interested and started a mattress factory with no experience with mattresses except for sleeping on a mattress. <laughs> right. We just had the idea. We didn't have employees. We didn't have a, a manufacturing space. We didn't have the tools. We didn't have beds. We didn't have springs. We didn't. We had nothing. What made him want to do that? What did, like wh- that seems so random. My parents own Tommy's Wholesale in Atlanta, okay. and so they sell a bunch of weird random stuff there. And one of the weird random things that they sell is mattresses. Okay. And they started seeing the margins on mattresses. Right, which are and they, crazy. Yeah, they yeah. are crazy. And so they were like, this is a great market. We need to start making them. We could yeah. be making so much. This is a brilliant idea. And so that's literally just what it was for my dad. So was, sort of the original mattress factory yeah. kind of model. Is yeah, what took. Okay. exactly. Like a family-owned business making you know the products in-house and then selling them. Mostly B2B. Okay. Rather than B2C. Oh, so you're selling to hotels and things yeah. like that? Yeah, hotels, other small mom and pop furniture stores, things like that. So is that what started giving you the idea of doing Highland Oak Group? Or I know there were some steps in between. You did recovering lawyer and and uh, stay in business consulting and all. So what was the track that led yeah. you to what you're doing now? I think what I'm doing now, which is business consulting and business growth consulting, is what I was supposed to always be doing, but I kind of had to go through all these steps to get there. Yeah. With the Mattress Factory, what I realized was I really loved working in manufacturing. There were so many problems that could be solved. Right. And I really liked that every manufacturing business is different from another and there's always a different problem to solve. I got tired of solving the same problems at the mattress factory. Uh So I decided to step away and to do consulting for manufacturing companies. And I did that for about a year. And a year into it, what I started to realize was manufacturers really don't want to change Right. How they do business. (laughs) They're pretty set in their ways. They've been doing it for, you know, two or three decades. And there's really not a whole lot of reason for them to change. You know, a lot of them still don't even have a website. You know, they they still have salespeople with business cards, you know, and that's they're still doing things very old school. And there's nothing wrong with that. But there is something wrong when you try to introduce process efficiency. Yes. And they are just like, no, but this is how we've always done it. Still pushing paper instead of having a system, digital system in place. Exactly. So, so I actually stepped away from manufacturers at that point because it just felt like I was hitting my head against a wall. Right. And I like working with clients who are willing to hear what I have to say and then take those recommendations into their business. It's not that I'm a know-it-all. It's that someone from the outside has a lot more perspective sure. than someone who's just grinding it out day by day, You know, yeah. just putting out fires. And what I found was manufacturing clients weren't going to be the best fit for me. Yeah for me to sort of make the kind of impact that I wanted to make. What have you found since then that is the best? What's best for me is lawyers and doctors. Okay. And that makes sense. Yeah. I'm a lawyer myself, so lawyers are absolutely willing to listen to me. I've practiced so many different areas of law. It's pretty remarkable how many fields I actually know about. Right. So I think because of that, plus the fact that I'm a lawyer, plus the fact that I've got all this business experience, I think really allows lawyers to feel comfortable when I'm advising them. And they know that what I'm saying to them isn't, you know, spaghetti against the wall, let's see what sticks. It's, you know, true in fact, it's backed by all the business books. Plus, you know, it comes with my sort of unique 
view on things. What's uh, what's an indication that a law firm or a medical practice would need you? If like, you know, is there any sort of warning signs or? Yeah. Like- so I like to say that I like to work with companies that are willing to grow. Now that's really interesting because a lot of lawyers and doctors that you work with, and when you start really drilling them and asking them, do you really want to grow? The answer is always no, maybe not, because they don't understand what it actually takes for growth to happen. So there's a couple trigger things that I'll look for when I say growth. One is, you know, if you want to expand your practice, whether it's a medical practice or a legal practice, if you want to add in an extra area of law or an extra medical specialty. So you're expanding and growing. And so you need someone who can help you with that growth. Or another facility. Exactly. Exactly. Or another location. So that's one sort of good indicator of where I might be needed. Another indicator of growth could be if they're looking to bring on new people. So whether it's adding additional staff or it's bringing on junior attorneys or paralegals, right. that's usually another time where I say this is this is a good place to have me come and step in. Or it could just be a conversation of near me and I really want to increase my numbers. I right. want to make more money and I'm willing to do what it takes to make more money. You know, and and a lot of times that's really what the hiccup is. And they is, don't know what that is. Exactly. Yeah. And they're and then when I tell them what they have to do, they're like, uh, I don't really want to do that. Right. Never mind. Well, at least they know at that point. So exactly. It's, it's valuable information. Exactly. Is there a certain process that you tend to go through with every client or is it different for everyone? Everyone is always going to be custom in their own way because everyone's needs are going to be different, but there is a process. So the way that I do my business consulting is I have to look at your business and I have to see if you've got the fundamentals in place. And if you don't have the fundamentals in place, then I'm going to go through and fix that first. And then we'll be able to grow. Because What are are some of the fundamentals? Sure. So some of the fundamentals are going to be pricing, right? Like that is something that is true across the board. Right. Um, and I see so many businesses not hitting the mark when it comes to pricing. They're just underpricing everything. They're underpricing or their response is, well, my competitor charges this, so I'm charging just a yep. couple bucks less. Yeah. And that's never the answer when right. it comes to growing a successful, thriving business. You'll have a business, but will it be growing successful and thriving? Probably not. Do they even know what differentiates them from their competition at that point usually when you, before you come in or... Or is that something that you have to kind of drag out of them? Sometimes they have an idea of what makes them different from their competition. Like like if it's a doctor's office, they might be able to say, okay, you know, we have shorter wait times. Or, you know, our facility is just much nicer. That place is like a dump and hasn't been renovated since, you know, grandma passed it down to whoever else. And so sometimes they have an idea. Other times we really have to kind of bring it out of them and actually do what I like to call your secret sauce assessment, right? Like what is your secret sauce? What makes you different from the competition? Why should people work with you versus someone else? Because when you really think about it, we all kind of do all the same thing. I mean, there's a thousand other business consultants out there who do what I do, business consulting, but there's going to be something that makes me different from everyone else. And that's the thing that I have to then market and advertise to the public so that they hear my message and then they respond based so that, on that message. That's a great thing. Let's, let's talk about that. As you've developed this business, what have you found that is the thing for you that differentiates Highland Oak Group? A lot of my clients are doctors and lawyers. So just sort of being in that space definitely right. helps. Um, the other thing I find is my personality. 
uh, is definitely a differentiator. So, so there are business consultants who are a little bit more passive. I am not one of those consultants. And in my first meeting with a client, when we're just sitting down and they haven't even hired me yet, they're just a potential, we're just having a coffee and a conversation about their business, they're really going to get what kind of a person I am. Right. And really, it has to do with a personality fit, right? Can you trust me? Do you agree with the things that I'm saying? Do you see me as an advisor instead of as someone that you can just ask for advice and then not actually take? Right. Right. So so that's really just what it comes down to is are you going to be able to take my assessments and actually execute on them in your business. Because if not, then you're just wasting money and your time and my time. And that's not fun for anybody. Do you do accountability kind of assessments where you work ongoing with clients and make sure that they're hitting their key performance indicators and stuff like that? Yeah, absolutely. So so the way that my process typically works is I'll work with clients in three-month segments. Okay. And I usually do three-month segments because it's not a commitment where if things aren't working out, they, we don't have to keep working together. Yeah. So it's okay for either party to just say, this is not working, let's walk away. Right. And then we keep renewing at three-month intervals if there's progress being made, if right. I see you know things here. being implemented, you know all those things. Now, in terms of how I actually work with my clients, 99% of them are in person. So anytime I'm meeting with you, I'm meeting with you two to three times a month in right. person for two to three hours. It's very hard for you to sit in front of me and tell me that you haven't done something <laughs> in your business or have done something. Yeah, yeah. You know, there, there's that whole like, oh, oh, I'm in trouble, sort of mm-hmm. like the teacher, you right? You do your homework. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so when things don't get done, I'll give my clients the benefit of the doubt and I'll let them do things their way. But if I start to see that things aren't getting implemented at least as quickly or as efficiently as I want them to be, I'll step in and I'll just sort of do the work. So what that means and what that has looked like for some of my clients is I'll get access to their emails. I have their username, their password. I'll start sending out emails to potential clients, to close deals, oh, to, wow. okay. to do all of that just so, so I can facilitate the process because yeah. you know if i see my client is just you know running around and, and they've got a hundred thousand things that they need to do to get right. out customer orders especially you know we're approaching the holiday season people just tend to get busier this time of year i'll just go into their emails and i'll and i'll say okay did you send out these four emails no okay great i'll just go ahead and send them out it takes me no time but it keeps the ball moving and yeah. some of these conversations are crucial conversations that need to be had. And if you wait until the holiday time, they're going to be gone too. Right. So let's start to get this ball moving before so we can have some new business coming in before the end of the year. That's very hands-on. One of the things that you have talked about before was that you help with like the hiring process yeah. as well. So talk about the tendency for people to try to hire themselves, basically. Yeah, absolutely. So I love that you mentioned that because it's something that I see with a lot of my higher up CEOs where they're looking for a number two or even like an admin, the list of descriptions that they'll give me, okay, they have to be on time. They've got to be accountable. They've got to, they got to think like this business is their own. And I'm like, but it's not their business. And they may have some skin in the game, but it's not going to be as much as you have. And what you're looking to really do is hire a replication of you instead of someone who actually complements your skills by having the skills that you don't necessarily have. And, You know, as much as I love all my business owners, most of them aren't type A organized. So when you're looking for someone to be your number two, you want them to be type A organized. You don't want them to be visionaries. 
because yeah. the CEO is the visionary, right? Like they should be taking their time to think of, you know, unique solutions and where to go next and what office space to get into. But you need someone who's going to be like the detail-oriented person who yeah. can execute on your vision. So I think it's really important when CEOs are hiring to make sure that they are hiring for someone who has a set of skills that they lack. And it's okay to admit yeah. that they don't have those skills because not everybody is an expert in everything. No one is actually an expert in no, everything. You can't be good at and everything. And you can't be good at everything. So just choose the things that you want to be really good at and then find someone else who can be good at the things that you're not good at. It's that learning to fire yourself mentality. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, one of the other things you've talked about that I found interesting was vampire clients. Can you talk <laughs> about that? Yes, absolutely. So so I'll give a full disclosure. I've had my share of vampire clients. We all do. We've all had them. And so it's not to single out anyone, but it's really just to say you will come across clients who you feel like are a good fit for you. And then maybe down the road, they stop being such a good fit for you. Right. And what I mean by that specifically is they're calling you excessively. They're questioning your judgment. Mm -hmm. They are not really happy with your services or they are. This is a thing I see most often. I see them saying, well, you know, I talked to my friend who has this business and they did this kind of thing in their business. Can I do that thing? But it's not just once. It's like all the time. Right. And so it becomes very clear that they're not really listening to Second you. Second guessing everything. Yeah, yeah, they're just, they're relying on other people and they're just sort of like a plastic bag in the wind where, you know, whatever they hear, they're, they're just going to go in that direction. Right. And you're trying to like stabilize them, but they're just kind of going everywhere. Right, right. Yeah. Yep, we've all dealt with that. Yeah. If you had anything that you could go back and do differently, I think a lot of what your journey has been has led you to what you're doing now, so it's probably hard to give any of that up, but... Would you do anything differently or is there anything you would have done sooner? Or? Yeah, I'll tell you what I would have done sooner. So when I first started out in consulting, my first you know, big client was a manufacturer here in Atlanta. And I love that client because I learned everything that I'm not supposed to do right. in consulting. One, I only had one client. So yeah. when that relationship soured, you're out of job. <laughs> I was out of a job. I was out of money. I was out of everything. It's I had terrifying. to hustle real quick to find yeah. another client. So so definitely have diversity of clients. Don't have just one client. The other thing, I didn't work on a contract. And silly, silly me being a lawyer still didn't have a contract in place. So, right. you know, didn't have that. And then I charged way too little. And at the time when I was charging it, I felt like, wow, I'm making a lot of money. And in retrospect, I'm like, oh my God, I charged a quarter of what I actually should have. Now, how much of that do you attribute to imposter syndrome when you're getting started? Do you think that was kind of part of it? You just thought you're, you undervalued yourself because you didn't. Yeah. Really... I didn't really get the value I was bringing to the table. Right. And I think in that situation, I really learned that even if you charge a lot and the client says, no, that's okay. They're just not your ideal client. Right. And that's exactly. how I am now. I, I give my clients number, you know, 7,000, 10,000. And if they just say, oh my God, that's a lot. I can't do that. You're not my client. Right. And that's right. perfectly okay because there's going to be a consultant out there for you who's going to be a better fit for you. And that's perfectly fine. But I know what my numbers are and I don't negotiate them for, for anyone anymore because right. I know the time and the skill and just everything that goes into it. And I, when I work with a client, I treat the business like, okay, if this was my business, what would I do? And, and how would I 
want to see this being run. And so I put so much of myself into it that even if we're only meeting two or three times a month, I'm still thinking about your business right. all the time. Right. And really, ultimately, it doesn't matter how much time you're putting into it. It matters what the results are. Exactly. So I mean, if, they're putting, if they see that they're putting $10,000 in, but it's going to get them $100,000 mm-hmm. more a year, why wouldn't you do that? Exactly. What do you see with a lot of your businesses that are a common mistake that they're making? What, what is something that you, it just seems to always yeah. be something you're running into? I think this is such a great question, Ryan, because there's so much that I see, but there's there's some specific things that I see a lot of people doing. So there is a lot of confusion about what marketing really is right? and then how advertising plays into that. Mm-hmm. So what I see a lot of clients doing is when they are advertising, they're advertising for very short periods of times where, you know, what I like to say is it's got to be consistent. It's got to be repeatable. It's got to be through multiple channels right. and it's got to hit your ideal client. And so it's got to touch on all four of those things. And if it doesn't touch on all four of those things, then it doesn't work. So what I see a lot of business owners doing is, oh, someone came into me about doing a website and then doing some SEO. And so I'm going to put like, you know, $40,000 into that. And then I'm going to see where it goes. And my face just kind of explodes because I'm like, do you even know who your ideal client is before you're doing this? Do you even know if your customers hang out on the internet? Like, because for example, estate planning attorneys, like they might be working with clients who are older, yeah. You know, in their 60s and 70s, because that's really when you sure. start thinking about planning for the future and, and what comes next. Not hanging and, out on Facebook necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and they're not going to be on Facebook and, yeah. and they're not necessarily going to type in your website name. Right. So it's not necessarily going to be the best outlet for them. And right. so that's what I always like to say is, is your ideal client actually hanging out there? And if they're not, then don't spend your money there. Even even if your competitor, for some reason, <laughs> got tons. all these clients from it, yeah. and now you're just you know feeling FOMO from not doing it, don't do it. Like Just really do the proper assessments. Take the time to analyze who your clients are. Don't just put your money into something yeah. hoping Yeah, you have to find your, own, find your own fishing hole. Exactly, exactly. So that's one thing that I see a lot of business owners doing. The second thing that I see a lot of business owners doing, and and I don't blame them, right? Like when when we all started our business, we were wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. We thought it was going to go one way. And I can tell you my business looks completely different than I thought it was going to go. But what I see a lot of business owners doing is they stick so tight to that initial vision and they're not willing to let it go. And then what they'll do is they'll put more bad money into bad money and they'll keep investing it. And at some point you have to be able to take a step back and pull the plug. And either it's that you've spent so much money or so much time or energy or whatever it is, you have to really look at the business to see like, is this really what you want for your life? And how long does it take to know that? I mean, one of the catch 22s with a lot of business owners like myself is something like this podcast. I mean, you pretty much have to go, okay, we're going to do this for a year no matter what and Uh see where it goes. Then we'll make a decision. You can't do, it's like you were saying with the advertising, you can't do two months of of advertising on Facebook and think that, you know, oh, that was a success or a failure. It's going to be a failure because you had no way of establishing. So what do you generally see as like a good time frame for making those kind of judgments? So there's two points where I really recommend that business owners ask this question, especially attorneys who are about to start their own practice. There's certain questions that you should ask yourself. Are you organized? 
Are you going to be able to be a salesperson? Are you going to be able to ask clients for money up front? I see so many attorneys leaving big law practices or just prosecutor's offices or whatever. And they're like, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm going to make so much more money. And they don't understand how much time it actually takes to run a business and what it actually takes to run a business. It's not just being a lawyer. You've got to be the bookkeeper. You've got to be the accountant. You've got to be the marketer. You've got to be the advertiser. Like you're going to be all those things. And if you're not okay with being all those things, don't even start your own business. Right. You may only get 40% of law in. Exactly. Yeah. 60% of it's going to be biz dev and admin. Exactly. So that's an important question to ask like before you even start. And just like you did, Ryan, set a time frame. So if you know that this is something that you're going to do, then set a time frame six months, a year, give yourself that time. Don't go anything beyond that. Then really just look at the numbers for what they are. How much came in, how much went out. If more went out than what came in, close. Yeah. You know, don't put your emotions into it. Try to really look at it from a numbers perspective and try to really see it as, you know, I learned so much from this experience and it just wasn't for me and that's perfectly okay. And I'm going to take what I learned and put it into the next venture. Right. And and it's kind of what I had to do with Lumel and some of my other businesses yeah, that I had. Yeah. Like you really just have to take a step back and take a hard look and have that hard conversation with yourself. And it's a conversation I have with some of my clients too, where I, I look at them and I'm like, you're really stressed out. Are yeah. you sure that this is what you should be doing? Do you want to maybe go back to, you know, practicing for a big firm, but maybe as of counsel instead of a partner? Like, right. you know, I have honest conversations with them at my own detriment, right? Because then they don't need my sure. services anymore. Sure. But I would rather my clients actually be happy in their day-to-day lives rather yeah. than trying to be this image of the business owner that they have, which in reality is just making them miserable. Right. Yeah. So for yourself, looking forward to 2020? I am. What's coming up for you? So really cool stuff going on with my own business itself. I've recently launched an online course. It's called How to Have a Wildly Successful Law Practice. Oh, very cool. Um, It's available on the site. I realized that there were lawyers who didn't necessarily have the time commitment to meet with me one-on-one, didn't have the budget to meet with me one-on-one, but still really wanted help. And so this online course is really for them. It doesn't matter where you're licensed. As long as you are a law practice owner or a partner in a law practice, it's going to help you grow your business. So that's something exciting going on. Is that video or is it? It is video. So it's 20 hours of content plus assessments. It's the same assessments that I give to my clients one-on-one, except I'm just not one-on-one with you. You're right. doing it on your own. And there's quizzes, and it's just a whole lot of material to help you really stand out in your law practice. And is that already launched? or It's already launched, yeah. Awesome. It's How's launched, it going? It's going really well. Um, I'm getting really good feedback on it, which is so fantastic yeah. when it actually happens. And what I've found is... There's actually a market for this. So 2020 is going to be me launching more online courses for a lot of clients. And the next sector is probably going to end up just being the general solopreneur. You know, I started out with lawyers specifically because, you know, I speak their language. They get me. It's easy to get in front of them. The next step now is going to be to sort of broaden that market a little bit and go after some of the solopreneurs who are really having a hard time and struggling with getting their business off the ground. And it's not really for the side hustlers, but the people who actually have 
a business, whether, you know, it's a moving company or it's a organizing company, whatever it is, right? Yeah. Like this, it's going to be the place for you to come and get the information and the tools you need to have That's a successful awesome. business. Well, give us the URL for that so we can make sure we get I will. the show notes. Absolutely. We'll do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Ryan. This was a lot of fun. It's great. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the show. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting network. That could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't already, also please subscribe to us on YouTube. Just go to our website, websuasion.com, websuasion.com. At the very top, you'll see links to social media. One of those is YouTube, third from the right. Click on that, click on the subscribe button, and then click on the bell icon to be notified of upcoming videos. We usually post about 10 to 12 a week, and they're great information, great video content for you to be sharing across social media to your clients to keep you top of mind. Next week on the show, we have Alan Waters of Amada Senior Care. They are one of the fastest growing home care provider companies in the United States, focused on serving aging and disabled adults who elect to remain in the privacy and comfort of their own homes. He's going to tell us all about the home care field and his experience buying a franchise from Amada Senior Care with his wife. We look forward to that and we hope you'll join us. Until then, have a productive work week. Uh-huh.